This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I-N-A-C-I-T-Y-L-I-K-E-Y-O-U-R-S dot C-O-M. For links to our social media, all popular podcast platforms, and links of interest pertaining to all episodes. On this episode, Kristen relates the story of when she visited North Korea. This trip was before the U.S. government implemented the ban on Americans entering the country. We also talk about her writing, acting, and directing in the film industry. Then after the break, Dino discusses his experience as a stuntman in the film and television business. And Craig talks about his involvement in the industry as well. They both then discuss the new project they are working on called Mercy, where Dino acts as director, writer, and producer, while Craig functions as Dino's assistant director. Here are their stories. Hey, I'm Kristen Van Nest, and I'm from Los Angeles, California. In fall 2018, I attended the Politicon conference in LA where Dennis Rodman talked about his experience in North Korea. And hundreds of people sat looking up at this counterfeit diplomat, listening to what he had to say. Sitting in the crowd, I may not look like someone who knows a lot about North Korea, but a few years ago while working as a marketing manager in Shanghai, I visited North Korea for a three-day trip. On stage, Rodman laughs about what a huge party he had in North Korea and how much they love Americans over there. He said that Kim Jong-il and all his friends kept saying how great America was. I sit in the crowd, my heart starts to race. This was not my experience. Dennis Rodman probably entered on a private jet and had his own private translator. On my trip, all the other tourists met the night before to take the train from China over the border to North Korea. But since I was the only American, I had to fly in directly through Pyongyang. On the ride from the airport to meet up with the rest of the group, my North Korean guide asked me if I watched Fox News and how I handle crazy people. This was really a threat. Don't be political on this trip. After all, I look like the blonde girl you'd usually see on a milk carton or missing in Aruba. I had to be careful with what I said. Although I was on my best behavior, I am an adventurous person. So at every stop, I would stray as far away as I could from the group. And the guide had been trained that I may be a CIA spy trying to gather secrets against his country. And so at every stop, 
when the guide noticed I was missing, he'd come looking for me and yell at me. I hate your country. Your country is bad. Your people are terrible. And then check my camera and delete any pictures of the military troops stationed everywhere. This happened repeatedly. We're very lucky we're going to the war museum, our guide announced with a level of excitement as if winning a golden ticket to the chocolate factory. The war museum had a beautifully trimmed lawn like Versailles. Our tour started at an outdoor hut filled with Korean War military equipment. Trucks, planes, machine guns, taken from the South Koreans and Americans. The museum plaques talked about the war and key battles. The guy gestured to the equipment behind him as he described how valiant the North Korean fighters were. While still smiling, he pointed up to the last plaque and said, this picture is of an American pilot with his plane, shot in the head by the North Koreans. The picture clearly showed the bullet hole in the back of his head. He said this so nonchalantly, the same way you'd say, this is a painting by Monet of water lilies. I took a deep breath and walked away. After this, our guide came up to me and screamed at me. Do you see what your country did? Your country is terrible. As if I personally did all of this. He looked like he wanted to spit on me. I wanted to respond, to defend the country I love, but I was in survival mode. I have zero power, zero rights, I am the enemy. Next, we headed back to the main building. We walked up a beautiful marble staircase through large cherry wood doors, kind of like entering the entrance hall of a theater. The doors opened to a huge statue of Kim Jong-un, smiling and waving in front of a painted backdrop of pastel fireworks, the same one in the movie, The Interview. I could see Dennis Rodman being taken here and entertained in one of the rooms, eating crab legs, laughing, having the best time of his life. He said when he came to North Korea, he had done zero research on the country and just thought it was another paying gig. He showed up, met his fans, who happened to run a country where people live 50 years in the past, are starving to death, and taught to want to kill Dennis Rodman's fellow Americans. But he shook their hands, entertained them a bit, and mostly importantly to him, got paid and headed back to his mansion in LA. And that likely was his experience. Unlike my tour, he probably wasn't brought to a room to watch a movie entitled, Who Started the Korean War? Spoiler alert, the US. The movie talked about how the Americans dropped more bombs on Pyongyang than the population who lived there and showed a bunch of CIA secret documents, quote, from the US that were riddled with spelling errors. It ended with a dead four-year-old Korean girl laying out on a pile of rubble, saying America killed all these innocent Koreans. I watched the camera slowly zoom in on the small, innocent body 
of the dead child. I felt tears in my eyes, but didn't want the guy to see me. I didn't want him to wrongly think I believe in their propaganda. We go to the next room called Victory Room. The room is to celebrate the victorious defeat of Americans in the Korean War. Gunshots and crow noises are playing in the background. Fake life-size bodies of American soldiers are strewn across the ground. One has a fake crow eating its guts from its lifeless body. The loudspeaker plays a recording saying the body strung up like a scarecrow is the head of the American troop, mentioning him by name and saying he's so ashamed to have led his pathetic troops to defeat. The wallpaper in the background is the white crosses from the World War II Memorial. This room was celebrating each and every bullet that went into each one of those young men. Once the tour is over, I race back to the bus. I wanted to be alone. As the only American, the others weren't relating to this as I do. They don't feel the hate and the danger. As I sit on the bus, I feel completely overwhelmed. Later, I found out that I had a bacterial food poisoning, probably because of a North Korean, knowing I was an American, spitting in my food. As I sit, a fever is developing as my mind tried to process what I had just seen. On the bus back to our hotel, the main guide suggests we all sing our national anthems. Such a fun activity. This feels like one of those things where being the only one from the enemy state, I should opt out for fear that it's actually illegal and I'll get thrown into the forced labor camps. After others sing, the main guide has a great idea. We are so blessed to have an American on this trip. Why doesn't she come up to sing? This is the trap I've been waiting for. I walk up to the front of the bus and take the bus mic from his hand and breathe deeply. Cause baby, you're a firework. Come on, show them what you're worth. Thank God the whole bus sings with me and finds this hilarious. I use the distraction to rust back to my seat and fall into the pleathery abyss. Back to watching Dennis Rodman talk about all the fun he had, probably also singing with the North Korean leaders. I am livid. His experience is not the truth. I see all the Americans around me listening to him. They roll their eyes in disdain at this man of power's complete stupidity. I'm just a face in the crowd. I'm not famous. No one knows what it's like. And they can't. Americans are no longer allowed to visit North Korea. They can only listen to Dennis Rodman. How long have you been uh, writing? Do, have you, did you study uh, in college or anything? Or this is something you just recently picked up? 
Um, in college, I studied international affairs and economics. So going into North Korea, I already knew what I was getting into. Um, but I traveled to over 40 countries and I wanted to see what it was like because I wanted to understand, you know, we hear about how crazy the leadership is, but I wanted to see really what it's like for the people there. And for me, that's the saddest thing about the country is that the people living there are in such poverty. They don't have internet. They're all malnourished. At first, everyone was wearing very similar clothes. And I realized it's because they're all made from the same factories because no one will trade with North Korea. So it's completely isolated. And that level of poverty is implemented so that the government, a small group of people, can have immense wealth. And for me, the experience really made me think about how, like even a small number of people can, can really impact the lives of so many others. You, said, you mentioned taking photos of the military. Did you see a lot of military armed? And, and what are they, do you, do you feel, what are they armed for if they're, you know, not oppressing their own people? Why are there so many military around? Yeah. So um, apparently for it's, I don't know, it's very hard to find like true facts in North Korea. So some of the things I've learned, I'm not sure they're 100% true, but they're things that I've been told. And apparently you're required to be in the army for 10 years. But what the army does is the army kind of works um, to quote, provide for the people. So it'll be really weird because we drove to the, um, the border with South Korea. And while riding there, there's like people in army garb, you know, sitting in the fields. But what the quote army does in those 10 years is they'll like, you know, be rice farmers. They'll do all these things to make sure that the country is running. So they're basically like the army is um, really just kind of running the country as opposed to doing what we would traditionally see a military do. And also there is like, I mean, one way that a country can control its people is by having an external enemy. So if we look at what, this is international affairs, but if we look at like Russia right now or some countries, like whenever they're having internal turmoil, they often find an enemy that they, that everyone can rally against so that people have to trust the government to protect them. So with North Korea, they, like everyone who's in North Korea and why the guide who kept yelling at me, he mainly spoke Chinese. Because my group was international, this was probably one of his first interactions with an American because he's probably used only for Chinese speaking tour guides, tour groups. But my group had 14 nationalities. And so this is one of the first times he's really like met the enemy. And so him screaming at me is because he truly believes and they're taught that at any time the U.S. will drop a bomb on North Korea. It's not like, oh, the U.S. was at war at one point and like, you know, if tensions rise, maybe something will happen. No, it's like the Cold War. They believe that at any time, Americans may strike and kill them. And, and they're told that story of more bombs being dropped on Pyongyang than actual people who live in there. So it's it's a great fear that is used to control people 
and help them trust that the military and the government is actually there to protect them, even though in reality, that government is the one that's keeping them locked in poverty with no countries that trade with them, with you know not enough food. A lot of the cars there were like 1985, like old models. And we were, what was told is that apparently a car company traded with them in the 80s and then they never paid for the cars. So then all the other car companies were like, oh, cool, yeah, nope, not, not, you know, not giving you any cars because you're not gonna pay us back. So, I mean, that and the North Korean currency not being worth anything, they're completely isolated. During this time, was that when, uh, I can't remember his first name, Wambier, is it Adam Wambier? Uh, Otto Wambier, oh, yes. Uh, yeah, when it was, was he, in prison at the time you were there? So he was in prison the year after, and he actually stayed in the, so after he was imprisoned, Americans since then have not been allowed to visit. So you couldn't, you cannot do a trip like I did anymore. And he stayed in the exact same hotel that I stayed in. So, and what happened is you're, you're trapped on an island. You can't leave the island. You can see Pyongyang, but you're on this island and there's one hotel and it's quote, a five-star hotel, except there's rolling blackouts and it only has hot water at certain times. But according to them, it's quote, a five-star hotel and there's no internet in the country. So it's $4 for 25 kilobytes. So it's, if you want to use like the internet in the hotel, there's one computer with internet. So opening your email, you're already spending hundreds of dollars. So he stayed in that hotel and at night you can go into the basement and there's karaoke and there's a bowling um, alley or you can go up to the top floor and there's a bar up there or there's a bar in the lobby. So they really keep you locked in that hotel and then you get drunk in the hotel. So if we think about Otto, he's a college guy, he's in a frat. You know, his frat brothers are like, I dare you to steal something from this hotel. And so he goes and he steals a poster, a piece of paper from the wall. And they accuse him of being in the CIA and stealing um, secrets. And that is what op that's what ended with him 15 years um, in a hard labor camp where he then had a head injury where he was brought back to the US and pretty much immediately died. And before I left, there was a calendar on the wall in the room I stayed in, and my uh, roommate was a German girl. And she was like, oh, I want to take the calendar as a souvenir. And she took the, the calendar. But, you know, nothing ever happened to her because, I mean, he's just, Otto is just a pawn, and he's just leverage that they need. So him being taken by the government is really, it doesn't have to do with the piece of paper he stole from the wall. It has to do with bigger geopolitical moves. And that's why when I was there, like I've studied international affairs. And so I knew that I was going into a very dangerous situation and that I had zero rights the moment the, that flight landed or the moment I got on the plane. So I was very careful. And that's why when they asked me to sing the national anthem, I knew that I couldn't sing it. And luckily I just on my feet started singing Katy Perry, which everyone thought was funny. But that was my way of, okay, I don't know what the rules are that are going to get me in trouble.
but singing the enemy state's national anthem, probably not allowed. And so that's not something I'm gonna do. And the whole time I was there, I was very aware of being careful to color in the lines so that there would be no excuse. Um, but you know, they, they probably don't always need an excuse. Well, there are a lot of posters about, I mean, did you see tons of propaganda posters all over the place? Yeah, in the hotel, I don't really remember because like I said, it was a quote, five-star hotel, but the, like, the power was usually out in the hallways. So it was kind of creepy going from the elevator back to my room because you're in pretty much complete darkness, um, like inside, so you can't really see. Um, but throughout the country, there were posters everywhere. I mean, anywhere you turned, any corner, any, like any wall was just covered with propaganda posters. They were very like in the kind of like communist, like when you see posters of uh, like Stalin and Russia, it very much in that like, we're helping the people kind of like, like when we flew in on the flight, they played a video and I couldn't understand what they were saying, but it was North Korean singing and some of them had military outfits on and then they're, you know, showing like, wheat like beautiful wheat or like apples you know it's very much this like agrarian bountiful view because they literally they live in that they don't live in the modern technology that we have like when we went to the border it was just fields and fields for farming rice and these aren't we're not talking like monsanto industrial we're talking like people with their you know pants rolled up trying to farm it was really it's really really sad just the level of poverty within the country well i want to go ahead and talk about your podcast but before that why don't you let my listeners know where they can find your writing yeah so uh i write i write a lot of personal essays like this one i do a lot of comedy too um, so you can find my writing on Instagram and Twitter. I'm published in a bunch of magazines and literary reviews and satirical publications. So the best place to check is on my social media and that's at Kristen Van Nest, K-R-I-S-T-E-N-V-A-N-N-E-S-T. -E -E and so I post all my articles on there. I also run a YouTube channel, um, Night Pants with a Z where I do funny sketches. So if you follow me on social media, I always post when I have new essays up, um, talking about kind of experiences like this and some lighter ones, some funnier ones as well. Now go ahead and tell us about your podcast. Yeah, so I have a new podcast with TVCO. They're a live streaming app um, where I interview women who work in TV. So this past week I interviewed a former writer for the show Veep and it was really interesting. She told me about how um, for the show, you know, Veep makes fun of politicians. And in season seven, uh, they wrote like whole storylines and then our president did them. Like the joke that's supposed to be the dumb thing that the politicians did actually occurred in real life. So they had to rewrite um, big portions of the show because they couldn't, the joke wasn't funny anymore because it was reality. So. Um, so yeah, I interview a bunch of women. Um, I interview directors, producers, and writers, all women who work on your favorite TV shows and kind of hear about how they became writers and producers and directors on those shows, as well as like, you know, what, what their experience is behind the scenes in Hollywood. I've lived in LA for two and a half years now, and 
I've been on an Amazon Prime show as a lead actress. I've been on BuzzFeed. Um, so not only I, I do writing, acting, and directing. So this kind of combines all those passions of hearing people's stories of their experiences and kind of learning how they make our favorite stories that we see on TV. Is your podcast only found on, on that particular channel? It's on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and it's called Women Behind the Screen with Kristen Van Nest. Okay. And it's on, yeah, it's on all of those. Cool. Now, you mentioned that you're an actress and a writer and a director. Why don't you let us know what you've done in the, in the realm of directing and writing? Yeah, so I, um, I, I've written a number, I've written, acted, in, and directed a number of sketches, which you can find on YouTube. So I run Night Pants, um, Night Pants with a Z, and uh, it ha we have about 10,000 followers. And so we have a bunch of sketches, I've done a bunch of sketches on there. My most recent one is called, is, um, called Long Island's Marie Kondo. And so I don't know if you're familiar with Marie Kondo, the Japanese woman who helps people tidy their homes. So I made a funny sketch about this woman in Long Island who advertises on Craigslist and tells everyone I can clean your home. And then she comes to this poor family's home and is like smoking and just, you know, like, you got too many tchotchkes. I'm going to take these to my place. And just kind of like the family realizes at the end, like, oh, our life was pretty okay. Like, this woman's crazy. Please just leave. Um, so, yeah, so I write, act, and direct on there. Um, I'm also getting into screenwriting. So I'm transitioning from writing personal essays like this to kind of taking all these experiences and creating fictitious, fictitious TV shows. So that's kind of the next big step for me. Hey, in a city like yours, listeners, Cece here, the host of the Sooner State True Crime Podcast. We focus on cases based in my wonderful home state of Oklahoma. And since the term Sooner, actually refers to the state's very first true crime, cheaters in the land run, Oklahoma is definitely a crime state. Sooner State True Crime can be found in most podcast apps or visit our website anchor.fm slash crime state. New episodes are released twice a month. Follow us on Twitter at crime state for upcoming episodes and more. So come away with me and discover my crime state on the Sooner State True Crime Podcast. Hi, it's Audra, Jason, and Matt from Drinkopedia Podcast. We're a bad education podcast that's like drunk history for the full curriculum. We have new episodes every Thursday, and you can find us on most major podcast platforms. Join us at the bar and follow us on Twitter at Drinkopedia Pod. Hi, I'm Dino Mucho, calling from Wilmington, North Carolina. Hi, I'm Craig Edwards. I'm also calling from Wilmington, North Carolina. And um, Craig and I are uh, going to be working together on a on a film that we are producing. But uh, we'll get back to that in a minute. My history, I'm a stuntman in film and television. And... Uh, that dream and passion started out when I was about 10 years old in 1976. Um, I watched Evil Knievel. I was really pretty blown away by what he was doing on that heavy motorcycle and um, doing those stunts. 
But then in, um, it, while in elementary school and at recess, we played this game on the field called Muckle the Man with the Ball, which is basically a game with the football. There's really no teams who ever had the football. The only, he's going get, to get it taken away from him by being knocked to the ground, tackled, crashed into, and whatnot. And um, I would get hit and just bounce off the ground, roll, get back to my feet, and keep on running. And so one of my classmates at the time said, you know, you should be a stuntman. And he was in sixth grade, I was in fourth grade. I didn't know what a stuntman was. But uh, anyways, I just kept that in the back of my mind. And then in 1978, Burt Reynolds came out with his movie called Hooper, which if you're a stuntman, you should know what Hooper is. It's a movie about stuntmen. I dragged, uh, I got my father uh, to take me and my siblings to go see it. Um, my parents had divorced like a year earlier and we'd have him on, he'd have us on on Sundays and wanted to do something with us, he would take us to a movie. And so we went to see Hooper and I was um, blown away by uh, by the story. And, and even at 12 years old, just being so into these stunt guys and doing what they're doing. And so I kept that in the back of my mind for a lot of years, you know, in my teenage years, the dream kind of was slipping away. How am I going to do that coming from Johnston, Rhode Island? So in high school, I'd be doing backhand springs and such down the high school corridor and told everybody I wanted to be a stunt man. Then I graduate high school. I get into lumber. I'm wondering where I'm going to go with my life. Um, in 1987, I go to a community college for machine design. And at that time, all the drafting was going to uh, the computer, computer-aided drafting. And I just couldn't see myself sitting behind a desk nine to 10 hours a day doing this. And so um, a couple of friends of mine had stumbled upon an advertisement for a, uh, a stunt school, which was frowned upon back, back then. Now there's several classes and seminars you can take to hone your skills or gain skills as a stunt person. But anyways, I went through this school in 1988, taught you the basics. At a Wild West town, it was a live shows we, we would do there. I did that for a few years and that fell apart. From there, we, uh, some of us have formed a, a group and we did live shows at racetracks and jumping motorcycles and crashing cars and what have you during in intermission. I wasn't really happy with doing the live stuff because I always wanted to be a film and television stunt guy. And the professionals are in the Screen Actors Guild and that's what I was uh, going for. And this was all before the state tax incentive, film tax incentives that we have now. So up in New England, there wasn't really much shooting there. And I'm, and I'm not a city guy, so I'd be hard pressed to be moving to New York or LA. Um, and around that time, around 1992 or so, uh, some friends of mine have moved to North Carolina. Um, my friend Mark's wife was uh, from North Carolina, so they moved back there. His landscape and business was starting to flourish, and he asked his brother and I if we'd come down and help out for the summer. So we did, 
And um, while I was down, I was researching the film industry in North Carolina, and I found out that it was third, third in the nation in film production. And so I, I would say about two months later, no, I, I, I ended up staying down here, and my friend moved back to Rhode Island. But I stayed, I was 300 miles west of Wilmington. I got up with the local uh, um, casting company here in Wilmington and uh, started getting background work on Matlock and other TV movie of the weeks that were shooting here. And um, then eventually in 96, I actually moved to Wilmington, took a big pay cut doing that and I hustled and I got up with some of the local stunt coordinators, one guy in particular, John Copeman, and uh, we started training together and he eventually got my first job. So I was a late, late bloomer to this industry. I was 30, 31 by the time I got my Screen Actors Guild card. And John and I have been working together ever since. Still working, I'm in my 50s now, so I don't get called as much anymore. But um, here's where I'm at and um, just trying to continue doing what I love doing and uh, progress maybe into some other things now, which is independent filmmaking as well. From there, I think I'll have to let Craig yep. go forward if he wants to. Sure. I was also a child in the 70s. <clears throat> My, um, I, was, I became a fan of film and television just immediately as a very young man and kind of knew that by the time I got into high school that I was going to head towards some kind of a film school and did that and went to film school for college and got out in 90. And at that point, I knew that my meager savings were not gonna last long in New York or Los Angeles. So um, a friend who had vacationed in Wilmington, North Carolina said, I think they make movies in Wilmington, North Carolina. And this is pre-internet, like I said, about 1990. But we did what research we could and we found out that there was a studio here and they had made movies here that studio had been built around 1984 or so by Dino De Laurentiis, the Italian producer. And he had brought all of his production here to Wilmington. Sadly, by about 1988, his uh, propensity for spending double digit millions of dollars on movies that were then only making single digit uh, millions of dollars back in ticket sales bankrupted him and he had to sell the studio. So the studio went into a kind of a dead zone period in the late eighties and, um, 1992, the Carroll Co. Company had bought it. Um, they were the people that had done Rambo, which was their big selling point. And Carroll Co. had bought the studios and they were gearing back up and they were becoming a force again in, in filmmaking. And as Dino said, at one point, I think Florida probably would have fought with us over it. But, um, you know, New York and Los Angeles were, of course, the two biggest production hubs. But, but we were either third or fourth, depending on who you believe, either us or Florida was third. And... Uh, I moved down in 92 and took about four months to figure out how to start doing extra work, just as Dino did. And I started out on a film that nobody really remembers called Amos and Andrew that was uh, an early appearance by Samuel L. Jackson and Nicolas Cage was in it. And uh, from there, I moved into production work as a production assistant and did four seasons of Dawson's Creek of the six. and. Um, did a lot of movies. There was a point where you couldn't turn on the Lifetime movie channel in a 24-hour period and not see something that I worked on. And eventually, of course, ran across Dino. Dino and I came together um, 
on shows where he would come in to do stunts and I was the guy who would kind of tell him when it was time to go to set and things like that. So we met in that fashion and became friends. And things got bad by about 2001, Canada had taken through tax incentives, they had taken almost all of the production away from America, really. I mean, they'd really taken a lot away. And I, uh, my life had changed. I had married and settled down a bit. And so the idea of moving to Canada or anything like that was out of the question. So I kind of reluctantly sort of retired out of the film industry and got a job outside of the industry. And I had been doing that job for several years and would meet up with Dino and talk about the state of things and and such. And Dino was already making noises some years ago that he was wanting to make a change and look into maybe moving behind the camera. And um, I supported him in that. Uh, we talked about things like uh, a Buster Keaton biopic, uh, which I think he has taken a poke at writing a script for and things. So we have talked about those things over the years and then he came forward and said he wanted to make a short film um, to kind of be a calling card into independent filmmaking. And um, he, he's got such a great way about him and, and he's presented this uh, film so well that he, uh, as he said on the website, he's kind of pulled me out of retirement, so to speak. And I have joined him uh, because it's also been something that um, I've been wanting to get back to, but maybe not in a full-time fashion, but in a, in a shorter term run. So this is perfect for me to come back and, and join him on set. And that's kind of where um, I came into this project, but, but, he's, but the project itself has had an interesting genesis. So I'm gonna let him take back over and tell you how it came about. Yeah, so um, it's interesting because I was up in uh, Rhode Island visiting uh, family and had been remodeling the basement of my mother's house and my friend uh, Jeff Medeiros, um, who I met in that stunt school back in 1988, we're still friends today. Uh, he was helping me with with that um, remodeling. So he had a he had also had a job that he had to do for his landlord's house to repaint the trim on it on uh, Prudence Island. And so while we were up there, he was telling me about this this story. I think back in the um, 18th century, I think there was the New England Vampire Scare. And so he was telling me about one particular story that took place in Exeter, Rhode Island. And it was on some show. I, I don't know the name of the show, but it's a show where they kind of researched some legends um, in different parts of the country or world and this one was about the uh mercy brown story up in exeter rhode island and that was during the vampire scare like i said and people were getting sick and they were dying of uh what was known then as consumption which we know now is tuberculosis at any rate um in the mercy brown incident the whole family the wife got sick and died i think there was another older sister who got sick and died and then Mercy also fell ill to tuberculosis and, and died. And uh, now the, the, the man's son was, was ill. Going around the town, they were thinking that it were vampires that are causing these people to get sick. So they, uh, 
I don't know how they got on it, but they thought Mercy Brown might be a vampire and they exhumed the body and they saw that the body was still in, intact with a little blood pooling at the bottom of the casket. So they thought that she was coming back to life and get people sick. I mean, what it really was, was that when prior to, um, when they buried her, it was before the winter and before the frost um, and the ground froze. And um, so her body was decomposing much slower so at any rate, the story was really, really interesting. And there were still some more stories that led up to the whole vampire scare that happened up there as well, which I won't get into. But um, so Jeff and I, as we were working on this house, when both of us were in between film and TV jobs, we started formulating an idea. And I told Jeff, I want to stay away from vampires. I don't want to go that route. There's so much of them right now. So in, in trying to create this story, I, I always liked the horror movies that dealt with the supernatural. So I leaned on that aspect of, of a story and Jeff and I started fleshing it out and coming up with something. And so, you know, I'd get back to the house and I'd start writing and it started forming you know, 26 pages later, you know, we we had a, a story and I sent it to my friend Marshall, who will be our cinematographer on it. And I sent it to Craig and Craig liked it. And I said, okay, we, we might be onto something. So that's what we've been working on, hoping to get this thing off the ground. I'd like to jump in. Um... I got to tell you that when you when you come into the business, which you know I was around from '92 to 2001, so that's a 10-year run. You, every other person you talk to is going to tell you that they're writing a script, and um, of the you know you meet 100 people, 50 of them tell you they're writing a script. Now, of those 50, five of them will actually produce an actual you know, something on paper, so they'll actually do something where they're writing. And then of, of that, whatever that number is, if it's five people, two of them will be readable, three of them will be so bad, you know, there's nobody would ever even think of producing something like that. So you can see how the numbers whittled down. So when, you know, when Dino said he was writing a script, you know, as much as I like him and, and trusted that he was going to do something along those lines, there's still that little tickle in the back of your head. You kind of go, hmm, you know, is he going to be one of those guys that just never produces anything? So he sent me the script. And then the next thing you think is, well, is it is it possible that it's going to be one of the good ones or is it more likely going to be one of that bigger number of, you know, not so good scripts? And I was blown away because the script was completely solid and it told its story. It knew what it, you know, really wrote a script that told the story in exactly the number of pages it needed to be. And in script format, just to let your listeners know, um, when he said 26, 27 pages, what that is going to work out to is roughly 26 to 30 minutes because it's roughly a minute a page on screen. That's that They set that format so rigidly that that's how it ends up working out. So he had told this story that so beautifully fit within that time frame and and it didn't it 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 left you wanting you know you could certainly want to know more about it but it told its story and it wrapped up and it was over it didn't end with a to be continued and it didn't well we don't know what happened there 
there was a, a clear story told. It was um, it was scary. It was scary to read on the paper, you know, on the page. And I got excited, and that's when I said, um, you know, when you get this thing going, if you if you need help, I would you know love to help out on this thing. And and at that point, then you know it was kind of up to Dino as the as the main producer, along uh, I think with his friend Jeff up north to um, work out you know how this was going to be put together so that the movie could be made. And that, and this is another thing where I would you know Dino, when you take back over here in a second, you know talk about the fact that, you know how this is not going to be like the average short where people just donate their time, but you know what you've got in mind for the cast and crew. Right. Um... The, one of the things that, um, well, first of all, I want to want to be able to pay everybody. Um, there are this this type of film can be done a de, on a deferred payment scale, but um, I know in this industry and the people that want to do this and the people that do do this work hard and they work long hours, and um, so compensation is is really important. That's one of the things I wanted to do. The other things I wanted to do is I see I see a lot of stress on film sets, and I'm kind of wanting to make a more enjoyable uh, working environment. And I I got this from I'm I'm a big student of Buster Keaton, the silent film um, genius. Things were different way back then, but one of the things that they would do, and he, you know he he was already well known. So they, they gave him money to make his movies very different from what we're doing. But the environment he created on set from what I've read and I've studied him for about 20 years is, was an, a, an enjoyable one. Then he, they, he had the trust of his producers and, and whatnot to, uh, to, to make his movie as he sees fit. And, you know, they would get stumped on a little part in, in film production and and not know where to go storyline because he never worked from a script, but they would just stop and, and play baseball for a little bit until uh, an idea came to them, then they'd get back to work. Again, things worked way differently back then, but um, so uh, an enjoyable environment, um, a lot of trust of the different department heads to, to give me what they need and I'll give them what they need. I got Craig on because I've known Craig for a lot of years and uh, he's um, he's a person as an AD, as a human being, is just respectful to others and I know that he'd get the set um, flowing um, efficiently uh, without any disrespect to any uh, people that are working under us. We've got some, some actors hired, we're still, we're still casting. I'm going to I'm going to direct direct this and Craig will will AD it as assistant direct. I have somebody I have somebody for sound. So what's um, what's what's the name of the project? It's called Mercy. Well, I was going to yeah, I was going to mention um when a lot of people hear assistant director AD as Dina said that there's a thing called a director's assistant. And there's a thing called an assistant director. They're very different jobs. Um, the director's assistant gets the director coffee and runs errands and goes and picks up his pharmacy <laughs> run and does all of that. The assistant director runs the set for the director. So the director is on any film, whether it's a short, a feature, a television project, whatever it is, 
They are the end all be all place where all decisions are made. Now that's not to say that there aren't producers who also figure into that and things like that. But should that curtain be blue? Should this set have a door back there? Should this drink look like lemonade or should it look like bourbon? These kinds of questions are brought to the director constantly throughout a film shoot. And no matter how much prep is done, which you are supposed to come on the set prepped and ready to go, these questions still fly at the director all day long. And so what the assistant director does is he runs the set while the director, during the time that they're not actively shooting, is answering those questions and making sure that, that the production is continuing forward so that everybody is providing what is needed. And the assistant director is actually running the set. So the assistant director will go to the cinematographer and say, how long do you need to light your shot? He'll say 20 minutes. The assistant director will disperse that information, let the actors go back to their trailers. They have 20 minutes. You know, wardrobe, be ready to put, you know, the, the coat on the actor in 20 minutes. And those, that kind of thing. And then that, that all spreads out. And then the assistant director will just simply stay there while the director can go off and relax for a minute or answer more questions or whatever's happening with the director. And then after the 20 minutes, the, the assistant director gets an update. The cinematographer says, yes, I'm ready to shoot. They bring in what's called first team or the actors. They step in where the stand-ins have been standing to provide a, a body to light to for the cinematographer. And the first team then uh, usually does one last rehearsal and then camera rolls. And, and for that, the assistant director actually sets the camera rolling with a cry of, you know, roll cameras. The director then takes over to call for action. He watches the scene, he cuts it when he is ready to cut it, whether it's in the middle because there's a problem or at the end when it's a good take. And then the assistant director takes over, gets an answer from the director, is that going to be, you know, are we gonna go again or are we going to move on to the next shot? And then when the director's ready to move on, the assistant director then takes over and again starts pushing everybody towards what that next shot's gonna be, dispersing the information of what it's gonna be and getting all of the elements together for the director. So that's what I'm going to do. Uh, for Dino so that Dino can step back and make those bigger decisions, answer those questions, and direct the movie. I handle the, the scuttlebutt. That said, um, uh, Dino will be a writer, producer, director uh, of this project, um, and I'm going to assist and direct, and I'm just helping out behind the scenes now, whatever I can do, pushing some actors towards Dino to audition and things like that, because my time in the industry also provided me a, a background of knowing people. And that's a lot of filmmaking is when you know the right people, you can bring them in to the project or at least have them try out to be a part of the project. Dino's pretty much got the crew all lined up as to who's gonna handle what behind camera. And now it's just a matter of getting the actors lined up. And there's an audition process going on. Um, unfortunately, it's not a big enough project where, where they, actors can be flown in from all over the place. It's not that kind of a show. Right. So we're mainly going to be pulling from the talent pool here around Wilmington, which thankfully, you know, with actors going back to the eighties, uh, you know, there is a talent pool of older actors all the way down to kids, things like that. We do have a funding page. I guess the best place to uh, find it is on our Mercy Facebook page. And that would be at mercy at if P then Q action. Uh, if you type that in to Google, it'll take you to Mercy's uh, Facebook homepage. And in that, there's a link 
to the funding site from the Hawk Productions. If you're they doing search on Facebook, um, I think Mercy's in all caps, which will help. And yes. the image that comes up for the for our for the for this film's page is a young girl standing on beachside with the ocean behind her in a long white dress. So that'll kind of give if anybody's just going to go and do a direct Mercy search in Facebook, that would be how they can identify that they're on the right Mercy page. I kind of want to go back a little bit because you both talked about your early careers and uh, the different things you were doing. I want to know what you consider to be your favorite film that you worked on and maybe an anecdote about a time during that process that you really are proud of or that made an impression on you. Craig, do you want to take that one first? Because I got, I got a story. I'm just. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of my favorites uh, and it is, and it's, resonates today which is why i think it's kind of held on it's become a bit of a cult film it was a movie called empire records which ended up being a day in the life of a bunch of kids working in a record store it was set somewhere uh, up in the northeast of course we shot it here in wilmington and um liv tyler and renee zellweger were in it um renee had not yet hit she was before jerry Maguire, so it was long before she she became a big star Liv Tyler was actually at the time probably being pushed as the, the one that was most likely to break out of the cast. And she certainly had a, a fine acting career, but she's not gone quite to the heights that uh, Renee, Renee Zellweger ended up going. But um, somewhere along the way in the midst of shooting that film, um, a magazine article from, um, I believe it was Interview, which I'm actually going to look on my wall of fame here. Yeah, it was. It was Interview from November of 1994 came out and it had a one page uh, article on Renee because she was starting to make some headway in film. And I had her sign that and on it she wrote in the Sharpie, she wrote, this is my first ever autograph picture. So I do have Renee Zellweger's very first ever autograph. And it's actually on the wall right above my head right now. And it was a very fun shoot. That film has been on Netflix forever, uh, if anybody wants to check it out. And if you do, uh, there is a teen idol in the film, and uh, he has an autograph line in the record store. That's a big scene in the film. Uh, and there is just one man. All the other people coming to get the teen idol's autograph are women. Just one man in that uh, line. He might be somebody you... You might know, Michael. Oh, it's me. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was my little moment in the film. The director had me jump in and do this little bit in the film. So in any case, it is a kind of a fun movie. And that was a, it's kind of neat to have Renee Zellweger's first autograph. Well, I'd say one of the, the movies that I enjoyed working on the most just because of the uh, franchise was, uh, although I didn't, I'm going to admit, I didn't really care for the movie, was the fourth Indiana Jones Um just to be a part of that franchise was cool for the career and the, and the resume. Um, but as far as like an experience on set of an interesting stunt that was here in Wilmington in 1998, it was a British television series called uh, CI5, The New Professionals. And uh, it called for me to double an actor who was playing drunk, being chased by some bad guys on the battleship, um, USS North Carolina. 
and uh, there was nowhere for me to go. They were coming from all sides, and so the only option was to vault over the railing and into the Cape Fair River. This was shot at night, and uh, Craig knows this, but in that river lives uh, Charlie, the, the alligator, the 12-foot alligator, and she lives there, and she's been there for a long, long time, and um, so we had the Marine guys kind of like run their boats around um, scaring off the wildlife and whatnot. And I had to do my jump. We tried to time it for high tide, but the way things got delayed, the tide was going out. So the water level was going down. And this was about a 28 or 30 foot uh, belly flop that I had to do. So, you know, I'm in a heavy suit. I'm in a bald wig. I got to jump off this box they call it apple box um and vault over the rail and, and make this fall as ugly as i could possibly make it and try not to worry about charlie the alligator so what they had to do was they we had we had one of the production assistants go to the other side of the ship and we spotted the alligator she was just resting there in the marsh and kept the flashlight on her while i did my jump and then I also had the marine, the marine guys telling me, it's like, okay, the water level's now about eight or nine feet. The, the bottom is really, really murky. Don't get a limb stuck in there. <laughs> we, we might not be able to pull you out. And so um, Charlie stayed where she was. I did what I had to do. My belly flopped it. Um, the uh, safety team picked me up in the boat, brought me to the shoreline and uh, we had a few spectators watching, and uh, one guy's girlfriend said, nice fall, and the other guy, I guess, might have been a little bit jealous or something. I don't know, he said something sarcastic, like, yeah, nice fall, like, nice dive. I guess he thought I was supposed to dive, and I didn't, and I belly flopped, so that was, uh, we had a good laugh at that. How about uh, your favorite actors or director that you've worked with? Before before that, I want to I gotta tell a little story on Dino uh, real quick because this is kind of a marvelous thing. Uh, you remember the soup with Joel McHale, um, Michael, the show that uh, used clips from other shows and then he would kind of sarcastically talk about them. Yeah, it was yeah. On a few years ago on the E Network. Oh yeah. <laughs> they got a they got a kind of a hair up their nose about this show that shot here in Wilmington called One Tree Hill, and they would somebody was watching every episode and they would look for anything that they could poke fun at on the suit. And one of the clips that uh, got used more than once, in fact, I think it made one of their anniversary shows or the year end show or something, a Dino stunt. Uh, Dino, you take over and tell what happens in that. Cause that was a very funny clip. <laughs> I forgot about that, you know. It, uh, it was an episode where one of the characters was getting a new heart. So um, we had a helicopter and I'm in whatever the wardrobe was, I can't remember. And I've got the cooler that has the hat in it. And I get off the helicopter, camera's tracking with me, and we go into the into the hospital where Dan is waiting for his heart. And uh, in this hospital, for some reason, there was a stoner dude sitting there with a dog on a leash. And he turns to do something, pulls the leash taut. I don't see it. I trip on it. I... Uh, smack down onto the floor, spill the heart out. The dog grabs the heart and takes off with it. And um, it wasn't a complex stunt, but uh, I had people texting me, man, you made talk soup. 
And I'm like, what is that? Because I wasn't watching Talk Soup at the time. But yeah, it's been on there a couple of times. I'd like to talk just real quick, do a minute or so about the crowdfunding, just to make sure we kind of sell that home a little more. So, you know, the, this this project has been budgeted out and um, Dino is looking to raise that money um, through crowdfunding. And so we are hoping that people may want to kick in a few bucks. And what, you know, there are some incentives there on the site. You'll see them when you get to it and things that, you know, you can get a copy of the film and things like that. But really what we're just hoping is that people will want to see this story told and that they wouldn't mind kicking in a bit of money if they, if they have the ability. And if, and if nothing else, share, share the website, talk it up. Let's, you know, if we could get people to, to want to do that, if they can't financially contribute, that would be awesome just because the more word of mouth, you know, through social media, so to speak, I really think that um, it could help people who may be able to, to, to kick in. And then at that point, you've got a cast and crew that are getting paid and a, and a solidly produced short that is going to be able to really scare you because that's what this thing is going to do. Okay. Once again, that information will be in the show notes. So if you're interested uh, in helping this project, go to the show notes, look for the link and donate.